that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning and welcome to uh, the 11 o'clock service of Christ the King Anglican Church at Crimson Tees. We're continuing our series in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, and today we encounter one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. This account has created a whole genre of stories. The underdog defeats the favorite. So that to this day, in the secular press, headlines about David versus Goliath, versus Goliath are common in sports and business and politics and social justice. But five years ago, a book came out by a New York Times best-selling author and University of Toronto journalism graduate, Malcolm Gladwell. It is entitled, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Now, according to Gladwell, everybody's been getting the, uh, the story of David and Goliath wrong. Because owing to David's speed and agility and clear-sightedness and confidence and the tactical brilliance of choosing the Bible Times equivalent of a shotgun, David actually had the upper hand. He was just, you know, he just looked like the underdog to the unsophisticated eye. But actually, according to the original source, the scriptures, neither Gladwell nor the interpretation he deconstructs is the real story of David and Goliath. Both get it wrong because both misunderstand the battle, as though it were only between David and Goliath. Friends, it is such a blessing for us to come to this passage having, under Keith's leadership and exposition, worked through all the 16 chapters that came before, and having the joyful prospect of working through the rest of 1 and 2 Samuel in the year ahead. So let's dive in to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Last week, chapter 16 introduced David and the promise that he will be a new kind of king, a man chosen by God according to God's heart instead of according to the people's heart, like Saul. Chapter 17 reintroduces David. And you may have noticed that there are some issues of chronology between the two chapters. That is, questions about the precise time order of various events. I'm not going to deal with them because Keith has kindly offered 
to deal with these in the next sermon of the series. Suffice it for me to say that I am persuaded, after study, that chapters 16 and 17 intentionally serve together in different but complementary ways to introduce the new King David. 1 Samuel 17 introduces David as a new kind of military leader under God. The chapter presents David in contrast to the failing leadership of Saul, who is now, after David's uh, uh, private anointing in last week's chapter, um, a king in name only. And chapter 17 presents David as building upon the faith of Jonathan. By the Spirit of God that rushed upon David at his anointing, David sees and hears and acts by faith. And God uses David to save Israel in a way that transcends human strengths and strategies and technologies, bringing glory to God over the Philistine gods and over all other enemies of God, seen and unseen. The chapter begins in verse 1 with the Philistines uh, picking a fight with Israel um, by encroaching on their territory and setting up camp. Saul and the Israelite army are forced to respond, and the two opposing armies line up for battle either side of the Valley of Elah. Then from the Philistine camp emerges this uh, formidable warrior, Goliath of Gath. The text calls him a champion. This means he is especially suited to and equipped for and experienced with one-on-one -on -one combat. Goliath shouts at the Israelites in two parts. First, in verses 8 and 9, he challenges them to choose a man to represent them and fight him one-on-one -on -one to decide the whole battle. Second, he sums up in verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy is translated, defy means to heap shame on. So it's like Goliath was saying, what's wrong with you losers? You bunch of lily-livered chickens, or worse. Give me a man that we can get this thing over with. The immediate response of Saul and all Israel is in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. What Saul and Israel hear fills them with fear, and that fear becomes paralysis over a period of 40 days. Verse 16 says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening, Verse 20 talks about how the troops go out to battle the battle line each morning, shouting the war cry. But then Goliath comes out and recites his speech again, 
And verse 24 says, When the Israelites saw him, they fled from him and were much afraid. So it's kind of like this. Picture a gymnasium at Valley of Allah High School with bleachers running down both sides. And two teams gather for the deciding game of a championship. The Israelites fill in the bleachers on one side of the gym, and the Philistines fill in the bleachers on the other side. And Israel cries out, We've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? And the Philistines respond, We've got Goliath. Yes, we do. We've got Goliath. How about you? And the Israelites panic and run away. So there's no game and nothing happens. And this goes on morning and evening, day after day, for 40 days. The account of what's going on in the Valley of Allah highlights how Saul's leadership has become so ineffective. Remember that although Goliath is very tall, Saul is also tall. He was a head taller than all the other Israelites. And although Goliath has armor and weapons, we know that Saul does too. It's clear that of all the Israelites, Saul ought to be the one to represent his people against Goliath. Not only does he have the moral responsibility as their leader to stand up for them, but he is also the best match for Goliath in terms of stature and equipment. But Saul does nothing except put out the word among the troops that there will be a good reward for the man who can kill Goliath. Interleaved with this unfolding picture in the text of Saul's failing leadership, we meet David. He's the youngest son of an elderly man named Jesse. His three older brothers are with Saul in the Valley of Allah. David is going back and forth between there and home in uh, Bethlehem, about, uh, it's about 24 kilometers away. He's acting as a courier, uh, bringing supplies to his brothers and their unit, and bringing back news from them and feeding his father's sheep while he's at home. On one of his courier trips, David arrives early enough in the morning to go out with the troops and see Goliath and hear his speech. David sees and hears the same thing that Saul and the Israelites have seen and heard for 40 days, but he responds very differently. Now, some of the Israelite men are discussing the reward offered by Saul for the man who can take out Goliath. David enters into conversation with them. But whereas their focus is on the content of the reward, David's focus is on the reason for it, that something must be done about the shame that is being heaped on Israel, and by extension, Israel's God. He says in verse 26, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? At first, David's conversation draws the anger of his oldest brother, Eliab. But the things of which Eliab accuses David are baseless. They only serve to confirm um, Eliab as unworthy of the anointing that passed over him and his brothers in favor of David in chapter 16. After this, David's conversation gets him summoned by Saul. David offers to go out and fight Goliath. Saul says, you've got to be kidding. You're only a kid. And Goliath is an experienced man of war. David's response is in two parts. In verses 34 to 36, it sounds like David is trying to persuade Saul based on his street cred, or I guess we should say his shepherding cred. Um, he has gone up against lions and bears and killed them in order to rescue sheep and protect his father's flock. But then in verse 37, David summarizes his point by giving the credit to God for past and future victories. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul decides to take a chance on this um, courageously confident boy, David. After 40 days of stalemate, for better or for worse, at least something's going to happen now. Saul offers David his armor and sword. But David quickly finds that they're not going to work for him. So he sticks with what he knows. His staff, five smooth stones from the brook, in his shepherd's pouch, and is slain. And then off he goes, out to meet Goliath. When the Philistines see someone come out from the ranks of Israel, it's a first in 40 days. Goliath moves out and looks David over. What? He's only a kid. This is not a worthy opponent for me. Goliath is insulted. And he booms at David. In verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And then he curses David by his gods and adds, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David responds with the most important verses in the whole chapter. The words that clearly reveal David as a man who sees and hears and walks by faith in the one true living God. He does not trust in human strength or ingenuity any more than he trusts in dead idols. He is ready to live or die to bring glory to God. Beginning in verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
the name Lord of Hosts is a, is a single word in Hebrew, and it's sometimes translated God of the angel armies. The angel armies are part of the armies uh, the, um, of the living God that are lined up against Goliath and the Philistines and the uh, Philistines' gods in the Valley of Allah. Continuing in verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'm going to come back to this decisive word, will, a bit later. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. Remember the Philistine god Dagon back in chapter 5? Fallen prostrate before the ark of the God of Israel? with head and hands and feet cut off and neatly lined up at the threshold of the temple. Like the Philistine god, so will the Philistines' champion fall and head severed from his shoulders lie prostrate before the living God. Continuing, And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth. Goliath has just threatened David with exactly this, and now David is back at you, Goliath, and your Philistine army too. Um, is David just upping the pitch of battlefield bravado? No. Like the host of Egyptians that went down to a watery grave, when they drown in the Red Sea after the Exodus. So the host of the Philistines will suffer these indignities in death. So that, continuing in verse 46, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The Lord saves not with sword or spear. The battle is the Lord's. Victory belongs to him. All glory be to him. This is how David sees the contest with Goliath and the battle in the Valley of Allah. He sees it in the context of the cosmic spiritual battle that can have one and only one victor. And his message echoes the messages of the faith-filled persons that have come before him, most notably Moses at the Exodus, but including recently in our series, Samuel and Jonathan. After this speech, within just a couple of verses, it's all over. Goliath is coming at David. David runs towards Goliath, takes a stone, slings it, direct hit, breaks Goliath's forehead. He falls splat on his face. David runs over and decapitates Goliath with, his own, with Goliath's own sword. Now it's the Philistines' turn to flee, and the emboldened army of Israel surges forward and defeats them, leaving their dead and wounded strewn along the road for the birds and the beasts all the way to the Philistine cities of Gath and Ekron. Then they return and plunder the abandoned Philistine camp. 
David takes Goliath's head as a gruesome trophy, and Goliath, he takes Goliath's armor as his own plunder. Finally, the chapter ends with at first a flashback of Saul watching David go out to meet Goliath and asking in verse 55, whose son is this youth? And then a flash forward with David standing before Saul, holding the head of Goliath and saying in verse 58, the very last words of the chapter, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. These words form a perfect matching bookend for the combined chapters of 16 and 17. Remember how chapter 16 began in verse 1 with the Lord saying to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. As I said before, chapters 16 and 17 serve together in different but complementary ways to introduce this new king. And now as we move uh, into the rest of First and Second Samuel, David, the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, is the man. I have one last thing to talk about before I conclude. In this chapter, someone is notably absent, and that is Jonathan, the man of faith from chapter 14, who together with his armor bearer climbed uh, a nobody in the right mind would climb it, rock wall, with waiting enemies above them, to take on a, Philist a whole Philistine garrison. And they decided the whole battle because of it when they took that garrison. Where is Jonathan as Goliath holds the Israelite army hostage for 40 days? And the answer is, I don't know. He's certainly not dead. He shows up in the first verse of chapter 18 as David's new biggest fan. Maybe Saul forbade Jonathan as his eldest son and heir from taking on Goliath. Maybe Saul was still trying to preserve the dynasty that God had already denied him. Or maybe Jonathan just had a bad case of the flu. The text does not tell us, but what the text does do is present David as building upon the faith of Jonathan. Remember what Jonathan said? when suggesting to his armor bearer that they go up against the Philistine garrison atop the, the rock wall, he said, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Like Jonathan, David calls his enemy uncircumcised. It's a shorthand way of saying Goliath is not part of the covenant people of the living God, but instead worships pagan gods in the form of 
dead idols such as Dagon. Like Jonathan, David recognized that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few, or in David's case, saving by one. So he was willing to go alone against Goliath. But here's a difference between Jonathan and David. When Keith spoke on chapter 14, he pointed out that Jonathan's tentative words, it may be that the Lord will work for us, were part of Jonathan's faith in God, not a sign of lack of faith. Jonathan had total confidence that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. But he did not presume to dictate to God or to assume he knew all things about the will of God. But once God gave the sign um, with the Philistines saying, come up to us, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And he put his faith into action, risking his life against the enemies of God. But in David's case, um, in the absence of any clear sign, uh, clear confirming sign that we have in the text at any rate, David says unequivocally to Saul in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Jonathan said, it may be that the Lord will, while David simply said, the Lord will. Does that mean David has greater faith than Jonathan? But we just said, Jonathan's it may be was part of his faith, not a lack of faith. What then are we to make of David saying, the Lord will? This is an important question for us. Have you ever had someone tell you that if you have enough faith that the Lord will do something, he will? Sometimes this is called name it and claim it. Name a request to the Lord, claim the Lord will do it, and then just believe he will. But of course, if the request is not fulfilled, it must be because you didn't have enough faith. What do you think Jonathan would say about this kind of logic? I think he would say rubbish. Based on what the scriptures record of what he did say, I think he would respond something like this. Nothing can hinder the Lord because he is able to do as he wills through whom he wills. But his will is not decided by my will. I need to seek and discern his will and act in line with it, even at great risk or cost to myself. And so Jonathan was willing to risk his life to enact God's saving purposes in chapter 14. And the scriptures record that he worked a great salvation in Israel that day because he worked with God. But why then is David's case different? 
How was he so certain that the Lord would deliver him from the hand of Goliath? Well, in the whole witness of Scripture, we know a lot more about David than just what's in this chapter. Other parts of Scripture testify that David was a prophet. For example, many prophetic words that he wrote in the Psalms came to pass in the life, death, and resurrection and reign of Jesus Christ. When a prophet of the Lord speaks a word of the Lord, the Lord will not let that word fall to the ground. So I believe that David not only had faith that the Lord was able to save Israel through him going up against Goliath, but also that as a prophet of the Lord, David spoke the word of the Lord, confirming that the Lord would indeed do so. Thus David's confident assertions. First to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And then to Goliath himself, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And finally, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In these statements, we see not only faith, but also prophecy. Like Jonathan, David put his faith into action and risked his life to enact God's saving purposes against Goliath. And then his prophetic words were fulfilled to the glory of God. So friends, let us search the scriptures so that we may marvel at what God has done and abound in faith in what God is able to do and rehearse the prophetic promises of what God will do. But unless you are a prophet of the Lord, be careful about presuming to know exactly how he will do what he has promised, or exactly what he will do in and through your life. Instead, let's seek him in his will and courageously give ourselves to his saving purposes as he directs us even when it may be risky or costly to us. In concluding this sermon about David the king, I want to point to Christ the king. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few, or in David's case, by one, and ultimately, the one who saves is David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. David faced Goliath's defiance to enact God's saving purposes, and the result was Goliath died and David and the Israelites lived. Jesus faced our defiant rebellion to enact God's saving purposes but the result was Jesus died, that we might live. In the Valley of Allah, David took on Goliath, and God's judgment 
fell on Goliath, that David and the Israelites might mercifully go free. At Calvary, the Mount of Crucifixion, Jesus took on our sin, and God's judgment fell on Jesus, that we might mercifully go free. The battle is the Lord's, and in Jesus he has battled, battled not against us, but for us, to redeem us from the spiritual powers of evil that seek to destroy us forever. And in not just risking, but giving his life, he won the victory. Therefore God raised him from the dead and has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name, including above the name of David, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.